create a movement that's specifically about uh, sexism does, to me, feel divisive. It drives wives wicked. It makes such a golden brown pot. It must be lots of fun to be a mother. I've got something to apologize for. I wore my good suit because it was plain and neat. Afraid of not knowing what is proper. This yellow fluffo is such a short shortening. Hi, I'm Susan Osman, and this is Been There, Done That, a show about women who are shaping our world. Experienced, smart, versatile women who are redefining what it means to be a woman in the workplace today. You know I can't work without a good breakfast. All right, class, stop typing, please. All right, class, stop typing, please. Joining me in our UK studio is Jennifer Howard, one of the founding directors of Sound Understanding. She's an entrepreneur, and this is her second business. The first one spectacularly went up in flames. She's produced thousands of hours of audiobooks, and there's nothing Jennifer doesn't know when it comes to audio production. Hi, Jennifer. Hi, Susan. Thanks for having me. Great for you to be with us. Now, this new venture, Sound Understanding, it's quite a, a new a new business. Tell us about it and what it aims to do. Okay, well, we live in a world where time is incredibly precious and as professional people, we have little of it. And Sound Understanding produces nonfiction, uh, history, economics, politics, audio for professional people who don't have time to read. Now, you haven't, you haven't been running this business for long, but already you've got some pretty heavy hitters on your client list. We are really lucky. We've, uh, we've got Princeton University Press. Uh, we've just done some work for Cambridge University Press. Publishers like the Hachette Group, Little Brown, Orion, Hodder. Uh, we also work with the Chartered Banker Institute, which is fascinating. Um, they're the oldest banking institution in the world. They're in Edinburgh, and they produce a quarterly journal. Now, I, I mentioned perhaps rather unkindly that your, your first business spectacularly went up in flames. This is your second one. Do you feel you have to prove yourself and prove your worth in a different way because your first business wasn't successful? The thing about the second business is that you get to do over all the things you did wrong the first time round. So uh, I'm really excited about Sound Understanding um, coming to it wiser, shall we say. <laughs> Technology has finally caught up with the audiobook. So if you cast your mind back to the late 80s, well, mid-80s um, onwards, when, when audiobooks were recorded, uh, were offered on cassette, um, if you, you know, some of those books were like, you know, doorstops. They were enormous, um, 16, 18, 24. I've done books that are 36 cassettes, you know, and yeah. Um, so finally, the technology now allows... You, you know, you, the listener, to carry around hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours on on your phone or or your your MP3 player. Do you do you think it's sad that a business like yours can thrive? Because I love the actually holding a book. I love the smell of books. I love looking. I love going into bookshops. I like having the physicality of of actually reading a book. Do you think it's kind of a, an indictment of our times that we don't actually have time to sit down and read a book anymore. We have to listen to someone else read it to us. Do I think it's sad? I think that it's great that if someone doesn't have time to read, uh, they have the opportunity to listen to some wonderful readers, you know, reading fabulous stories. Um, I don't think that necessarily the uh, audiobook is a replacement for the written word either. 
um, I think there's certain things that people will listen to in audio and other things that they still want to read in print. How do you go about casting voices? How do you match the voice with the writer? Well, I'm working in the nonfiction space now. So with, but I come from fiction, I come from radio drama and then fiction. Uh, so originally, going back to The Economist, when we started, we had a cast of actors and The Economist said, they sound great, but you know, it sounds a little performed. And that's true because most actors are not well-versed in economics. Um, so we went away and cast a group of broadcasters. So now um, we use a combination of broadcasters and actors, predominantly broadcasters, and some actors. So how do we cast the voice? It's really important that the person reading the material know, understands what they're reading. Also, audiobooks, uh, reading an audiobook is, requires a tremendous amount of stamina, um, to you know, to, to, to lay down a a twelve hour book can take four days in studio. Gosh, that's a long it time. It is, and it's a bit like running a marathon. Now, you you really are I, the queen of audio. I think there's no question about that. But I, I I someone told me that you started your first job in radio at the age of fifteen in L.A. and you lied about your age. Is that true? <laughs> I can't believe it. <laughs> My secret's out. Uh, yes, I um. I've always been a radio junkie from, you know, from a very small child, which is ironic because my father was a film editor. And my mother was a continuity announcer. My uncle's a cameraman. Um, they, so visual television and, and film are my background. But I always loved radio. Um, and so I, um, I, heard a, I heard that there was a job going for a radio station now defunct in Los Angeles called KMGG, Magic 106. <laughs> and I applied for it and I lied about my age. Um, and when it, came, when, I got, you know, when it came time to have the job, I didn't, um, or when I was offered the job, I didn't have a social security number. So I had to... <laughs> Shock gasp. To confess, and do you know the music director was very—he—he—he he, he said he liked my chutzpah, so he. <laughs> Good for yeah. him. Yeah, we like him. <laughs> we liked him a lot. Giving you a yeah. chance. Now you do have a unique perspective because obviously people can hear from your accent. You're American. You're originally from LA, as you—you you just uh, told us. How do you feel the media differs between the US and the UK historically and and presently? In the U.S., we have um, a long tradition of talk shows, obviously, uh, and we have a lot of women presenters in the U.S. in a way that we don't hear in the U.K. In fact, I struggle to think of one talk show host. Um, we don't have any. No think, female talk show hosts. No, no not we don't, the TV. Do we? I, no. I couldn't think. I couldn't think of any. Um, so. Yeah, so I think probably women, dare I say women of a certain age, are probably more uh, exposed, you know, have more ex exposure in the U.S. than they do here in the U.K. What I love about the U.K. and what, what, what attracted me to it is the tradition of the spoken word. So, uh, as I said before, having worked in um, music radio in Los Angeles, it was such a revelation to come to the U.K. and find uh, Radio 4 as a... As a, as a place for spoken word outside of the talk show. Interesting. Well, you work for Radio 2, 3 and 4, and you were head of production at BBC Audiobooks at one time as well. Yes. What initially brought you to the UK? Was it to work for the BBC or, or was it something else? It was a man. <laughs> 
No <laughs> way. Shock. <laughs> a well, man. I came as a student and never left. So how long have you been in the UK for? I have been here, uh, th- it'll be 30 years this year. You've uh, had sound understanding for a few years, but and, as, and we, we talked about talking issues. But there was also a time when you decided not to be entrepreneurial and actually join a big company. And you worked at Vodafone, uh, where you managed a team of 60 plus producers. Why did you choose to abandon self-motivating work and, and join a, a big organisation? <laughs> Sounds like it was a deliberate decision. Basically, when it all went pop with my old business, uh, I was working under a non-compete clause. So I couldn't work in uh, audio for six months. So I sent a flare up to everybody in my network saying, hi there, anybody, um, I need a job, any job, doesn't matter what it is. but have you got? But I can't go near a microphone. So um, can anyone help? And a digital agency that I'd been uh, working with uh, said, yeah, we've got a role in Vodafone. Uh, Vodafone are one of our clients, and we have a role for a traffic manager. What's a traffic manager? Yeah, that's manager? what I said. <laughs> it's like traffic, you know, like out in the roads. <laughs> that's what I said. Uh, yeah, traffic manager is essentially a production manager. I mean, this was a role that I would have done 20 years ago. Um, and uh, I, but of course, I said, sure, I'm game. And off I went for an interview. And it was the first time that I was referred to as an older woman. Really? Yeah, it was interesting. So I was in my mid forties, um, mid to late forties, I guess. And and how old are you now? I am fifty one. Ha- have you had mentors throughout your career? Has anyone specifically influenced you? Yeah, I've had several mentors. Piers Plowright, uh, who is a fantastic uh, radio producer, was an early mentor of mine. Uh, a woman called Nicole Kirkman, who was publishing director at Chivers Press. Um, Susan Clark at The Economist. And Arthur Price, who was my business mentor, uh, he was Mary Tyler Moore's agent in the 1950s and founded MTM Enterprises. How have you managed to maintain a work-home balance, which women all around the world are having to deal with on a daily basis? Well, I'm not sure I've got it quite right. You can <laughs> talk to my husband about That's that. very honest. <laughs> <laughs> I try. <laughs> but I have the most supportive family. Uh, um, all three, so my husband, Don, uh, is a, he's an amazing cook. He's you know he's very practical. He's yeah I'm he, I'm so lucky. He's very very supported and uh, supportive, and I adore him. And the boys, both my young men, are uh, very self sufficient. And again, Arthur particularly is an excellent cook. So I very rarely know whether we have orange juice in the refrigerator or <laughs> whether we need loo roll or that sort of thing. <laughs> You're listening to Been There, Done That with me, Susan Osman, and I'm talking to audiobook entrepreneur Jennifer Howard. I have to ask you about the hashtag MeToo movement, because obviously that has impacted quite a lot, both in the UK and the US. What's your view of it? Because as I said earlier, you do have a unique perspective, having been in the UK for such a long time and then looking back in a sort of a kaleidoscopic way at the US. Do you think it's had any impact? I think it's had some impact, and I think the impact has been good. I have to say that I'm a little sceptical about it because I think that it can be quite divisive. And I, 
I think that women, sexism exists. We've all experienced it. And have you experienced yeah, sexism? Yeah, of course I have. Like one specific meeting I remember sitting in on, um, and I won't mention the company, but uh, where there was, it was quite openly discussed about a, a female employee uh, who was going to be going on a maternity leave and what a pain that was and how difficult it, you know, it would be. And then the follow-up conversation to that about uh, job sharing. Should we offer a job share? Oh, no, job shares are very difficult because m- women have childcare issues. We should try to hire women. Really? Yeah, and I remember saying um, I, that I felt very exposed during this conversation because I didn't agree with any of it. And it was quite uncomfortable. Mm. And it was the first time I'd experienced real overt um, sexism in that way. Having said that, to create a movement that's specifically about uh, sexism does, to me, feel divisive. It feels like an us and them, which is I'm not sure. And I don't think that's what the Me Too movement is trying to achieve. Um, it's to me, it should be much more about respect for hum- for human beings in general, and regardless of sex, color. Yeah, so just be just just respect one just another. respect one another. Full stop. I want to talk to you about how audiobooks are put together because I, I'm sure there are very few people who understand just how much work goes into it. Can you tell us a little bit about what happens from somebody saying to you, "I want to turn this book into an audiobook" to actually being able to hear it at the other end? Sure. Um, so l- let's talk about fiction first, shall we? The first thing that the producer does is read the book. Uh, if it's a series book um, that's been read by the, you know, by an actor in the previous series, then that's quite easy um, as far as casting is concerned. If it's not been cast yet, um, the producers obviously looking at the range of characters, the age and their um, where they come from. And it is really, really important with fiction to pay attention to all the teeny little details that the author gives about the, or, the where, where a character comes from. Because you could get to, um, you know, to the end of the book, page 295, and suddenly there's one line that says, um, you know, XYZ said Susan in her Yorkshire accent. <laughs> <laughs> and you've missed that. <laughs> that that's no. a really oh no moment. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so um, so yes. How, so what are the characters? So um, characters and ages and places and things. So that that will tell you what sort of um, range you're looking for with the actor. How long does it take to record, on average, a book? Or obviously, it depends on the length of it. But on average, how many days would you spend in a studio? Yeah, so how long has a piece of string? Really? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So just to take um, an average, say, eight-hour book, that would take three days, just just possibly two and a half to three days to record. So it's a very long day. And presumably actors are good because they can they can normally do accents and uh, characterizations because that's what they're used to doing on stage. Absolutely. I mean, for an actor, um, actors, actors either really love or loathe audiobooks. So those that love it, love it because you can play everybody. You get to be the whole, <laughs> you get to play all the parts. That's fantastic. Um, those that those that loathe it, loathe it, because it's really hard work. It's it's very, very intensive. You're sitting in a small studio for hours on end. 
And and hard for you, presumably, because you're having to literally hang on to every word. Sure. And you're listening as a producer, you're listening for um, all the things we talked about, characterization, pace, cadence. Um, but you're also listening for all the technical things like stomach rumbles and sniffs and script, well, less script rustle now because most people work on tablets. Um, but yeah, all those little extraneous noises. So I, I don't know if you if you want to or you can answer this, but who, who are some of your favourite actors that you've worked with oh, over the years? I have lots of favourites. Are you allowed to Are you allowed to spill the beans? Yeah, of course. <laughs> Maybe I won't talk about my less favourites. No, that? no, no, not the less favourites. Miriam Margulies is my. I think she is the most fantastic voice artist in the in the eighties here in the UK. She was the voice of the Cadbury chocolate bunny. And um, who'd have thought that a short, fat Jewish lesbian would be the sexiest voice on radio? And I'm not telling tales out of school, by the way. she That's how she describes herself. One of the things I love about working, again, in this industry, in this country, is that um, is that acting is a job. And so and that goes across radio, television, theater, film. So you can have big name actors who will come in and record an audiobook because it's part of uh, improving their craft. It's part of uh, it's it's part of being employed when you're in downtime. So what do you do for your downtime? Because it, presumably it's very intense work. Uh, you've got to concentrate. You've got the intellectuality. You've got the sensitivity. You've got to be emotionally connected to the to the to the words as well. So I mean, how, how on earth do you switch off? <laughs> My family might say I don't switch off. I do switch off. It takes a long time for me to switch off. When I come out of studio, basically, I don't want to be talked at. I don't want to be talked to. (laughs) Yeah, I I can. I can imagine you probably just. But just everyone just be quiet. I don't hear another voice. Or I want to talk. You know. Okay. If I'm listening, I've listened for eight hours for someone else talking. Now it's my turn to talk. the final part of my interview with audiobook entrepreneur Jennifer Howard. What makes a voice good to listen to? Definitely the modulation of someone's voice. Uh, you know, how smooth how smooth their voice is, the timbre is important. Um, the intelligence for me, it's always for me about how well they can interpret the written word um, that, that makes it a compelling listen. Your U.S. listeners won't know who Robert Peston is, I don't think, will they? They may not. He's at ITV now. He was a BBC uh, business journalist who predicted the financial crash um, in 2008. And he has this incredibly distinct voice that a lot of people find irritating. And yet, when he speaks, you know it's Robert Peston speaking and you listen because he has something to say. Now, you, you've listened, you must have listened to thousands of voices over the years. So when you listen to an audiobook, you know, you, you said that you like Miriam, you like working with Miriam Margolis. And, you you know, you talked about the, the earlier on about the, the, the few audiobooks you listen to. But presumably, when you listen to an audiobook, you're listening professionally as well. When one reads reviews 
you know, for audiobooks, quite often the listener will say, oh, I really didn't like that book. I thought that book was awful. And they associate it with the book rather than perhaps the performance. So sometimes it can be a fantastic book, and yet it just wasn't lifted off the page terribly well. Yeah, it's interesting because it really is a performance, isn't it? It's just it's not just about coming into the studio and reading the words. You have to perform the words, presumably. Absolutely. That's right. And some, uh, although I, as we said earlier, um, <laughs> with The Economist, you know, you can't say... GDP growth was down 12% last year. You, know, you can't perform it. That's a very different style. And you, you'll know that as a journalist. That's a different form of delivery. So um, with nonfiction, uh, the story doesn't unfold in a linear way with a climax. You know, it, it, it needs to um, have its own objectivity where applicable and, and its own um, drama where also where applicable. So what are you reading at the moment? Can't beat a good detective novel. I love Harry Bosch. Do you know him? Do you read, do you no, read crime I, no, fiction? No, I don't. Uh, I don't particularly like crime as a genre, actually. Oh, don't you? No. I. <laughs> well, Harry Bosch is a... Okay, I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll delve into him. <laughs> do. <laughs> yeah. And what about audiobooks? Have you got like a top three that you go, you know, someone listening to this, they've got to listen to this, this and this? It's a bit of a busman's holiday for me, but I have just um, been listening to Michelle Obama's Becoming... Oh, right. Which is wonderful. And there's an excellent example of an author. Can you imagine anybody else reading that book? No. So, no. yeah. Great. So she's number one. Who wants two and three? Oh, um, so again, I don't tend to listen to audiobooks, if I'm quite honest. Uh, but what I have been listening to is the um, in the run-up to Easter, the BBC have done the Book of Luke, uh, which is a fantastic dramatization of um, how Luke came to write his gospel mm. um and what's the third oh and uh yes ship of lies i think it's called it's another dramatization i like radio drama so i'm listening to it's a radio drama about the titanic and, uh, and it's the theory is that uh, that it was all a conspiracy and the and the parallels with uh modern day fake news uh, they're they're drawing parallels between the telegraph and the internet very, very interesting. So looking back to your professional life to date, can you imagine ever having done anything else? What else would you have liked to have been if you hadn't gone into audio? <laughs> when I was young, I wanted to be an archaeologist. I mean, when I was really little, I wanted to be an archaeologist. And I remember going to the um, Tutankhamun exhibition in Los Angeles. And then, I remember queuing for hours to see that in London, actually. Oh, wonderful. Um, but then I realised that, of course, archaeology is... is quite a lot of very long detailed work a bit like what you're doing now <laughs> yes that's true <laughs> so so looking ahead where where is jennifer howard in uh, five or ten years time well my dream is to move to italy recently i found that my grandmother on my father's side uh, who was sicilian uh, who was from a village just outside of palermo never took uh, u.s citizenship so um i i'd like to move to italy and what would you do when you when you got there? Very good question. I don't know yet. I don't oh. know. Maybe it will involve a microphone. Maybe it won't. Uh, do you know what? I somehow think it will. And that'll be your third business. On to the next chapter. Thank you, Jennifer Howard. You certainly are someone who has been there and done that. Thank you for having me. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to Been There, Done That with me, Susan Osman. Visit us on btdtshow.com for more interviews with dynamic women. And I'd love to hear from you as well, so please leave us a review and subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts. These are words of respect. How can you tell when you really want? And look how flaky it is. The girls weigh each portion of food they select. The Been There, Done That show is brought to you by Dan Hall at Pup Media Consultancy. We can still have a lot of fun, can't we? Your manners are showing. Ladies, would you each check the inside of your washer? To- Overweight makes an individual undesirable. Kind of a myth, wouldn't you say, Mr. Strayer? Beautiful. And you think that's all that matters?